This is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman. Guest today is Andrew Lowney, who has written The Scandalous Exile of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. That's a very tabloid title, Andrew. Was he really a traitor? Yes, I didn't put a, a question mark on it because the evidence I found in primary archives is that he didn't, uh, he wasn't an innocent dupe of the Nazis. He actually and actively intrigued with them. Uh, we know this from a whole series of sources, including captured German documents, which chart the communications between the various ambassadors uh, and the uh, foreign uh, minister in Berlin. Uh, talking about their conversations with him, how he'd exhorted them to bomb uh, London in order to, to subjugate Britain. Uh, and this is backed up with diary entries from people like the King's private secretary and MI5 officers who are monitoring these communications uh, and deciding how to respond to them. Now, this is the man who was king for a few days. He's the present Queen's uncle. Um, what happened then? Did it all fall apart because he met this woman, Wallace Simpson? No, I think he was a pretty pro-German uh, and pretty pro-Nazi even before he came to the throne in January 1936. Um, he, one of the concerns amongst the courtiers and the government officials was that he was going outside his constitutional role and trying to get involved in politics. He'd interfered with the Anglo-German Naval Agreement in 1935, as the king in March 1936, he'd played down the remilitarization of the Rhineland. So there were real concerns that he was getting too close to the Nazis. Wallace herself was quite close, who's supposed to have been a lover of Ron, von Ribbentrop, the German ambassador. Um, but the concerns were there long before um, uh, he abdicated in December 1936, or he came to the throne in January. Was there any part of this that was informed by his Germanness? Um, somewhere in the book, you say, if you go back to grandparents, great great grandparents, the majority of them were German. Yes, I mean, his mother was German. He was 14th, 16th German. Uh, he spoke fluent German. He'd uh, spent a lot of his youth uh, in Germany. Uh, he was very close to German cousins uh, who were Nazi generals like Prince Philip of Hesse uh, and the Duke of Saxe Coburg. So um, and he was a great believer in firm government. He felt that the Anglo-Saxon nations, Germany and Britain, should stand together against communist Russia. Do we have anything to learn from this uh, 80, 90 years on? Well, I think the very interesting similarities with the Harry and Meghan case. I mean, here we have a young charismatic prince who marries an American divorcee, goes into exile, is separated from his friends and family, blames his family for... Uh, the problems he's got, uh, falls out with his brother and his sister-in-law, uh, their debates about finances and security, an attempt to curate the story, uh, suing of the press, uh, abuse of the royal, um, uh, their royal links for commercial gain. Um, so the playbook's there for Harry and Meghan. I think the problem is uh, in a less deferential society with social media, uh, it's uh, very, and with, a, I have to say, a rather more sophisticated American divorcee than Wallace. It's very difficult to know how to respond. What they did before was freeze him out, and that's what they're doing with Harry. Um, was it easier to do in the 1930s than it is now? Yes, there was. I mean, the, the press here was uh, prepared to basically support the establishment, so there was very little coverage of the Wallace case. Uh, they did the sort of bidding of the, of, of, of the establishment. 
so, uh, and of course, you know, stuff appeared in the States and Australia, but no one here saw those papers, which, whereas now with the internet, everyone would. So yes, it's a much more difficult situation now than then. I have read this story over the years um, in other books. Um, for your book, did you have access to material that other earlier authors didn't have? Yes, I mean, I always rely on primary sources. Um, so uh, there's material from freedom, uh, freedom of information requests. I found a lot of material in the Bahamans uh, archives. Uh, there's material from German, Spanish, Russian archives, private archives in the States, uh, diaries, which have only just become available. Uh, I had access to the Royal Archives who opened the file on Edward VIII to me uh, the, as the first researcher since the official biographer Philip Ziegler 40 years ago. So it's all new. Um, uh, what's interesting is the stuff that has been there in the archives, for example, Churchill threatening to court martial the Duke in July 1940, and these captured German documents. Historians have, have been able to look at those for years. But I think most people who write about royal history are uh, pretty deferential. They rely on a sort of their royal sources and they're not going to upset them. And I think someone who comes as an outsider like me, who is perhaps a bit more independent, uh, is, is, is the way things are now going. When you wrote the book and you, uh, you got this new information, were the things that made your jaw drop and even you went, goodness me. Yes, I mean, lots, lots of times. Um, <laughs> yes. uh, I mean, the traitor king accusation, I didn't believe that he would communicate with the enemy in code during the war. I didn't think that he would exhort them to bomb Britain, including killing his brother. Uh, I didn't, uh, all the, the, the complicated sex lives, the, the fact that they had a, basically a pimp in Hollywood who was finding lovers of both sexes for them. All this was, was, was shocking to me and not what was part of the conventional story. I mean, just um, on a very surface level, putting aside the sex and everything, um, as someone who is negotiating with EasyJet to go to the UK, to go to Europe at the moment, these guys never travelled light. They wouldn't have got anywhere. They travel with sort of 71 items of luggage. Yes, it's become <laughs> a sort of motif of the book. I mean, even when it's... they were brought back to Britain at the beginning of the war, they refused to get on the plane because it wouldn't take their luggage. They had to have a destroyer. <laughs> uh, and I mean, the stories in the press of, of the, there was so much luggage that they had to store it in the corridors because it wouldn't fit in their suite. Uh, and even poor old Lady Halifax, who was the wife of the ambassador in, in Washington, was shocked that um, they, uh, to transfer their luggage from the railway station to the embassy, they actually hired a lorry to carry it. I mean, one wonders, A, what they were carrying a, a, around with them, and B, much more probably potently, was who was paying for all of this? Because what comes out of your book is, yes, he'd been king, yes, he wasn't king anymore, but he really didn't like paying for anything. No, he intended to live exactly as he had been as king. I mean, he liked um, rich Americans and sponged off them. They paid the bills. In that case, with the lorry going to the embassy, they, he just sent the bill to um, the Halifaxes. When he stayed with people and ran up huge bills, he just assumed that they would pay them. Uh, even his poor ADC was, was forced to pick up the bill sometimes at restaurants because he, 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 he just tended not to have any money. Uh, he was, they were very, very mean. I mean, they lived very extravagantly. They had a staff of 37, three chauffeurs, but they didn't pay them the going rate. Uh, they treated them very badly, and um, people rarely stayed. I mean, they, they didn't uh, in, um, have a great deal. Of, people didn't have a great deal of loyalty to them and vice versa. 
I mean, how do they justify it? I mean, do, have you got any idea what was going on in their brains and hearts that they could justify sponging off people, living like this, uh, just taking, if, it, if it's going, I'll have it. Um, I mean, it's, it sounds like they were horrible. Well, they were pretty horrible people, and that's how they sort of got on so well together. Um, they, he had been brought up to, in a sense, expect this uh, as a member of the royal family. He felt very self-entitled. You see shades of, of Prince Andrew there. She had had a pretty um, uh, sort of genteel poverty background, uh, upbringing. Her father had died when she was six months old, and she was just desperate for financial security, and, and he provided it. Uh, and she just sort of piggybacked off him. Uh, and, you know, people swarmed around them, were happy to pick up the bills, sucked up to them, thought they were important. I mean, they were the most boring people. There was no inner life. It was a very superficial cafe society life. But there were enough hangers-on who prepared to pay the bills and liked being with the royals. Um, I think um, I suspect it still goes on. It's still the same, yes. Because <laughs> someone said, you've got a lovely story, saying that he was like a prince in a fairy tale. He, he got everything but a soul, um, that people, music, art, books, ideas, just meant nothing. No, exactly. And I think that's a very crucial quote. We use it in the documentary that came out on Channel 4 a few weeks ago. And I think that really does sum him up. There was no, there was no center to him. Uh, it was a completely superficial life. I mean, they liked, you know, they would, they liked dressing well. They were always voted best dressed in the year. They, they um, liked entertaining. They were very trivial, superficial people. Now, um, a long time ago, when I was delving in this particular historical bucket, someone said to me, um, you know, uh, Wallace was a man. Um, she was not a beautiful woman. There was something odd about her. Um, I, I sort of tremulously ask, was there something odd about her? Yes. I mean, people described her like a playing card, which is very thin. Um, uh, she, as you say, wasn't at all good looking. I mean, people have suggested that she was a hermaphrodite, um, all sorts of, of, of stories. But I mean, clearly, uh, I just don't know. We haven't got medical reports. Uh, she probably had an abortion and as a result of that couldn't have children. He possibly had several illegitimate children before and indeed even when he was with Wallace. There's one still alive called Tim Seeley, an actor who was born in 1935. Um, but it was a very odd sex life. Um, some people say the marriage was never consummated. Others say that she had learnt all sorts of tricks in China, in the brothels there, and that's what kept him happy. It was certainly a very sadomasochistic relationship. She felt trapped in this relationship, resented it, uh, took it out on him, uh, was incredibly cruel and, and, and controlling. Uh, but the more unpleasant she was to him, the more he liked it. Uh, and, I mean, that's, um, that is just weird, isn't it? I mean, there's, <laughs> there's another story of him going off with um, a male mate, and he's really convivial, and he's good company, and then they come back to where she is, and he just clams up and becomes something completely different. So was he terrified of her? Yes, I think he was. I mean, he was looking for a mother figure, all his girlfriends had been sort of substitute mothers. He had a very cold uh, mother, Queen Mary. But I think that's a very, uh, you know, good, good example of, of in a sense, the, these, how he was torn between these two worlds. I mean, and I think possibly if he hadn't married Wallace and married someone who was rather nicer, he, he might have been a very different character. I mean, again, you can see shades of Harry. 
Um, but I think that's very interesting. It comes from uh, Fruity Metcalf's wife. Fruity Metcalf was his ADC and great friend and possible lover. Uh, and Baba Metcalf has a very incisive diary, which makes these points. And in fact, the letters between Fruity and Baba are very revealing. So we have, you know, lots of good sources on his behavior. It's not speculation. I mean, that's another thing. You talk to me, Andrew, about Fruity and Baba. I mean, the names are straight out of Noel Coward, aren't they? Or, um, you know, some opera or some skit at the time, that yes, these yes. people, I mean, high fruity, I mean... <laughs> it could be almost like the pastiche, exactly. Yes. You know, that's, it is a different world. You know, this, you've got to remember they were born in the 19th century. Uh, and, you know, they, in a sense, their the formative years were the 1920s and 30s. Uh, so, uh, and that is the circles they mixed in, you know, polo playing, um, hunting, um, balls at, 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 uh, and, and country house weekends. That that was the world that they knew. Well, I mean, even, even Prince Andrew said, oh, it was just a normal shooting weekend. I mean, for <laughs> most of us, uh, I mean, it still lives on, doesn't it? Yes, yes. The, 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 the royal family are different, um, certainly. And I mean, and that's part of the, instance, part of the mystique, that they are different. And I think this is one of the challenges, you know, how do they come to our level so that people can identify with them, but also admire them and feel that they are special. Mm. Has your attitude changed in the, I mean, the book is a terrific read and you've managed to make it into a page turner. Did your attitudes change during the writing process? Yes. I mean, I, you know, you, you've got to make people sympathetic, otherwise people aren't going to read about them. So I do specialize in rogues. Uh, I did a spy before and the Mountbatten's who had this very racy private life. But the Mountbatten's, you know, had a, a tradition of public service. There were lots and lots of things that one could admire about them. There was very little I could admire about the Windsors. And so uh, I, I did, um, uh, my respect for them fell, particularly when stories came out about how they treated their staff. And I think the other thing that, that changed was my view of the establishment, that the establishment will cover up these people uh, these captured German documents which showed just how treacherous he'd been to this country during the Second World War were suppressed by Churchill, some of them were destroyed. Uh, and this attempt to basically uh, cover up the sins of the royal family and others by the establishment, I, I found very shocking. The relationship with the Nazis, was, was that um, fueled and impelled from the German side, or was it from him as well? Well, no, the, the pressure came from the Germans, but they knew they were pushing it an open door. They knew that he, he was a great uh, supporter of Hitler. Uh, he had broadcast to Hitler just before the war. There was actually stories that Hitler had sent him a wedding present. Yes, you said a gold box. So yes. at the wedding, they had a, um, something from Winston Churchill and something from Hitler. I mean... I mean, they were, they were playing both sides. Um, and I mean, of course, Churchill fell out with him and refused to go on a cruise with him after the war because of his behavior. But um, no, the Germans realized that, uh, that he could be a very useful ally. They were very disappointed by the abdication because they'd hoped that they could work with him. And it's very interesting to speculate what might have happened. You know, if he had remained king, you know, we wouldn't have had Churchill probably. We would have had maybe Halifax. We may not have had a German uh, a declaration of war. We wouldn't have declared war against Germany. There would have been some sort of negotiated peace even before 1939. Uh, and um, Hitler may have survived, succeeded in, in defeating the Soviet Union and we would now be living in a German state. 
So it's fascinating to think what might have happened. Because he was also an anti-Semite, wasn't he? Yes, uh, right to the end of his life. And I think that's the, one of the really uh, chilling things. You know, what would have happened to, to anyone who was Jewish if, if he had been in power? Um, so, uh, and he remained, even after the concentration camps and the Holocaust, he remained an unrepentant anti-Semite. Was there a feeling, just stepping back a bit, was there a feeling oh, in, in UK management circles in the government, oh, goodness me, what are we going to do with this guy? Um, and they send him off to be a governor in a far distant yes. island. I mean, the, 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 there have been concerns about him from a very early stage, even before he became king. Uh, Baldwin, the prime minister, and Tommy Lassells, the king's private secretary, prayed each day he'd be killed steeplechasing. Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, the abdication in a sense saved them because Wallace came along, they used that as a device to get him off the throne. Uh, and as you say, the only way to control him was, uh, and his, the, the, the danger that he would come back as a puppet king in 1940, was to appoint him as governor of the Bahamas way, a long way away from Europe so that he could be kept quiet. But even then he created mischief. He was in touch with isolationists in America, uh, saying to them that they, you know, there was no reason for America to come into the war. So he was troublesome wherever he was. And there was a murder. Now, was he actually involved in that murder? Yes, this is a famous unsolved murder case called the Harry Oates case. Uh, the, uh, probably the richest man in the Bahamas was murdered in July 1943. Um, I don't think the king was involved or the former king was involved, but he certainly was involved in a cover-up. Uh, he was responsible for investigating the case and he brought in two crooked cops from, from Miami, from the FBI, rather than bring in Scotland Yard. He posted the commissioner of police to a neighboring island so he couldn't deal with it. A man who has, you know, who could have been trusted to do it dispassionately. Uh, he was involved, I think, uh, in with both Harry Oakes and the man who I believe ordered the murder, a man called Harold Christie, in a financial syndicate where they were taking money and taking it off to Mexico against currency regulations. And I think also he wanted to solve this murder as quickly as possible, even if it meant framing an innocent man, uh, Harry Oakes' son-in-law, because it was bad for tourism. And uh, Harold Christie was a very powerful figure on the executive committee of the, of the, of the um, administration. Uh, and he just wanted to shut the story down as quickly as possible and control it. Just, just before we finish, who was bankrolling this? Now, was he a pauper? Or was he rich? And if he was rich, where did the money come from? He was extremely rich. Uh, and he was rich, really, from his time as Prince of Wales, where he'd been taking money from the Duchy of Cornwall estates and not making clear that he had that money. Uh, and there was a great deal of resentment when the abdication came along because the, he was trying to get an annuity from George VI. And then George VI discovered he didn't need it. But he made money from uh, endorsing products like linen and crockery. He charged <laughs> for interviews. He um, uh, had insider dealing with a lot of crooked American businessmen. Uh, they sponged off people, so they very rarely paid for anything with their holidays. They even got subsidized or free travel across the Atlantic in return for a bit of publicity for the, for the cruise liner. So they knew how to use their status to basically get freebies. And final question. If we hadn't had the traitor king who stepped down and lived this uh, tawdry and scurrilous life with 
vast numbers of footmen. I mean, we live without the footmen. I'm not quite sure what the footmen do, but it's the best thing that he did for us, make it possible for us to have Queen Elizabeth II. Yes. I mean, uh, you know, clearly he probably wouldn't have had children as king, so she would have inherited, but she would have inherited in 1972 rather than in 1952. So we were celebrating a 50-year reign, not a 70-year reign now. Andrew, it's a fabulous read, Traitor King, The Scandalous Exile of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, Andrew Lowney. I know you're now going off to America. Will they be interested? Yes, the book's coming out. I'm doing some talks, in fact, tomorrow and Friday in New York. Uh, I'm doing further research in America in archives that were closed uh, during COVID. So I'm hoping that there will be more disclosures, uh, maybe an update of the book, and I hope maybe we can talk about it again another time. I would love to. Uh, if you see any passing Americans that would like to watch this conversation, please point them in this direction. Absolutely superb to talk to you, Andrew. Thank nice you. Nice to talk to you too. Thanks a lot. Okay. Bye-bye.